welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and this is a podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching and I have got Kim Collette on the line today to have a chat with me. Thanks for coming in today, Kim, and having a chat. Brent, thank you very much. It's uh, lovely to be here. I think I've been hunting you down for about six months, so I'm glad I finally tied you down eventually. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, a busy busy couple of months, been a busy uh, summer. Well, yeah, the the COVID thing's kind of been a bit of a, a strange thing. I'm hearing it all the time with the coaches I'm talking to is they've just – it's gone um, flat out since we've got into golf again and since players are coming back out again. Um, obviously, you're in Victoria as well where I am and it's been – we've had a pretty tough slog, but golfers are going crazy. They're, it's just going through the roof. It's funny um, from a coaching side, it's never been busier, never been uh, – more demand for it. I think from a golf club side, I think what we're seeing is a lot of our second tier golf courses, uh, all of a sudden, they're full of membership. Um, whereas before, I think what you'd find is people would be part of social groups or be playing a lot of uh, you know, public golf courses. They're, I think they're now seeing the benefit of joining up a golf club after the whole COVID thing and after all of a sudden members were the only ones that could play. Yeah, which is that's been good. Which it is, yeah, it is. It is certainly good if it's if it's attracting golfers to our sport, then that, that can't be a bad thing. True. So, Very true. Tell me, a, for the guys that that don't know who you are, can you give us a bit of your story? Because when I went searching for stuff to talk to you about, you're a hard man to find stuff with online. There's not much floating around about there. So let's let's hear your story from the start. Well, I I guess I grew up playing golf. Uh, Long Island Peninsula were my clubs growing up. Um, if I go back earlier than that, I played a handful of years at Devil Bend uh, down in Muraduck there, great little track. Uh, produced actually some very interesting golfers. But um, I then went to Long Island for a few years and then went to Peninsula where I uh, I played mainly Colts pennant, played a little bit of seniors pennant uh, and eventually decided to start my, my traineeship there. Okay, um, um, <laughs> you said you um, it, it uh, produced some unusual golfers down in Devil Bend. I'm assuming there were some low ball flight type golfers down there. It gets a bit blowy down there. <laughs> it gets a little blowy. Um, you learn to play off uh, a lot of different slopes. You learn to deal with water hazards that are um, tucked in trees and uh, the greens are rather undulating. The fairways can be tight. Uh, it's it's an interesting little golf course that's tucked away there. Yeah, no, it's it's, uh, it's it's an enjoyable track as well. It's always good fun to play down there. Absolutely, absolutely, really enjoyed it down there. Love going back there to play every now and then, and um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, now you said you went and played some some Colts golf at some of the private clubs. Did they chase you, or did you go to them first? Um. Actually, funny funny story. So, I age fifteen ish, roughly. I'd started working at Peninsula as a as a little uh, ball scout. Uh, I think back then we called it a range rat, um, picking up all the all the golf balls. But it was it was policy then that no staff member could be a member. Okay. There was a little bit of a changing of the guards from general managers. We had an interim manager, and there was a a, uh, a lack of pennant players. Uh, where I sort of got in through a little loophole there, where all of a sudden I was one of the few, very few staff members that were members. 
uh, and it was all due to actually filling, I think, filling numbers for the Colts pennant team. Okay. Um, which was fantastic, and I'm I'm still a member there now. Did I say it? 25 or 26 years on. Wow, it's starting to show your age there now. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Um, and it's obviously a great track to be involved with. It was obviously a pretty decent track even when you started and it's even improved even more with the upgrades that they've done down there. It's it's incredible. It's truly incredible. It's one of those ones where I think, you know, if we go back sort of that 20 years ago, it was always a fantastic course, but it always had the potential to be so much better. Uh, it was one of the... A few courses where range balls were free, one of the few courses that was 36 holes, had accommodation, uh, but it never sort of, it never lived up to that potential. It's funny how, you know, a large sum of money, a, a fair bit of great course design, new clubhouse, all of a sudden, it's, it's living up to that potential and it's showing actually where it should have been, you know, 20 years ago. Um, it, it, it's it's mind blowing to play there. It's mind blowing. It's really mind blowing to be a member in the facilities. Uh, yeah, second to none. How did your golf change coming from what is a good fun track, but a country course, going to that type of golf course? How quickly did you improve going to that type of golf course? Look, I, I think um, funny enough, I think Long Island did it more than Peninsula. So Long Island, uh, and it still is now, even now owned by the National, but it still is, it's one of those golf courses where the greens are hard, they're fast, uh, sort of golf course where you've got to, you, strategically, you have to be under the pin. Anything over the pin, you get caught out. Anything short side of the green, you get caught out. So even with your T-shirt, your T-shirt has to be in the right section of the fairway to then attack the pins. I think that taught me more about golf uh, than what it did when I moved over to Peninsula. I think I'd learnt it there. Um, not not to mention, you know, it's it's the it's the first chance of playing on true bent greens. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not a greenskeeper. I'm not great with grasses, but I believe they're sand around a fair, fairways there. Um, you know that that proper sandbelt style golf course with proper bunkers. I still remember. Uh, painfully still remember my very first Ivo Widden event at Woodlands. And it was my first look at proper sandbelt bunkers. Needless to say, I think I was still on the golf course uh, a couple of days later <laughs> trying to find my golf ball as I was, uh, you know, sculling them out of bunkers and goodness knows what. Um, so, yeah, Long Island was fantastic. Peninsula, uh, it was longer, a little bit bigger, a little bit wider. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, learnt a lot about playing golf down there. Yeah, Long Island's definitely probably harder off the tee, isn't it? It's, you've, you've got to be pretty straight. It's pretty penalising if you get off the off the short grass. It's into that tee without tree. doubt. Yeah, without doubt. So um, it's that it's definitely that sort of course where I think from tee to green, it actually standing on the tees, it looks relatively easy. There's not much to it. They're fairly straight holes. They're, it's pretty benign. And then when you miss one, geez, you're in a world of hurt there. Yeah, you don't get away with much. No, I, I tend to agree. I, I, I had the pleasure of playing that as a playing test for one of my training training, <laughs> and um, comparing that to, I think I played a, at Sorrento as well. Was one of them, and a couple other courses. But that was one of the rounds I had to play there, and that was just chalk and cheese. So tough. Yep. Yep. 
especially coming from the country as I did, trying to play on that, as you said, hard and fast golf course with significantly big greens. But if you are in the wrong spot, you've got zero chance of getting it close. Yeah, absolutely. It's still, it's still one of my favourite courses to go watch pennant. Yeah. Uh, to see the player, you know, the, the, the best used to be amateur golfers uh, in the state playing there and to see the funny mistakes, <laughs> the, you know, hit the wrong place and all of a sudden you see a three-putt pop up from nowhere. Um, it's it's a fantastic little challenge. Yeah, which is cool. So you said from there into traineeship. So you did that at Peninsula, you said? I started at Peninsula. Okay. Finished at Victoria uh, Golf Club. Um, I was... I was, wasn't fortunate enough to be one of those golfers that was just naturally talented. I had to work hard, um, which funny enough, I look back on it now and go, actually, I didn't need to work hard. I just need to be a little bit smarter about how I went about it and have a bit more fun with it. Uh, it's funny what you learn, you know, 20 years on. Uh, but, yeah, started started there under, um, under Marcus Johnson. Uh, I think I would have been roughly... 21-ish to 20, 23, roughly. Seems like a long time ago, but um, yeah, back then. Yeah. Uh, took me a few more years extra than what the regular traineeship program was, uh, but that's okay. Was that playing-wise that you struggled to get playing through? Playing-wise, yeah. Yep. yep. Um, so when was that? What year did you start? Uh, roughly 2000. Okay, so it was still there. Roughly. The three different playing stages back then, we wasn't it? We were still the three different playing sides. 40 um, rounds back then as well? 40 rounds. Yeah. Uh, I think it was 5.255 and then it dropped to about four, I think, or it might, it might be even out by a shot there. I actually think it might have been less. Yeah, I think because I was, I was out by 2,000, but I think it was still pretty similar. I think, I think you're right. I think it was 5.55 and maybe 4.5 maybe in the last year. Something like that. Yeah. Um, I, as I said, it, it seems like a very long time ago. It's a worry. <laughs> it is. Um, it's Twenty it, years it ago, is. mate. Twenty years yeah. ago. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's a that's a while now. Um, but yeah, look, it, it was funny. It was, I don't think it's any harder or easier now. It's still the same. It's still the same thing. Um, but it, it seemed like every round was life and death. Which is to look at it now, to look back on it now, and look at I sort of chuckle and go, golf's just not that hard. It is when it's life and death, though. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's interesting. I'm I'm curious on your thoughts on this because I thought going through my I was I didn't struggle so much with the playing getting through. I've found I I did get through without too many problems. But what I found towards the end of my third year was I was a worse ball striker but a much better scorer. I could still get the ball in the hole, but didn't have as good a golf swing by then, personally. Yeah, look, I, I don't, I don't, I actually, I think I was a better swinger of the golf club by the time I finished. Now, admittedly, you know, as I said, it took a few years. Um, fun, funny enough, I reckon midway through my traineeship, I, I was probably swinging it the best I've ever swung it but had no idea how to play on a golf course. Um, so I, I was a bit of a range junkie. I, I would practice and hit golf balls relentlessly on days off for the entire day. Most nights I'd be at MGA hitting golf balls. Um, so from a swing mechanics point of view, it wasn't that far wrong. 
I just had no idea where the ball was going and had no idea how to get the thing in the hole. Yeah. Um, so from a player point of view, actually my playing didn't tighten up until probably the last couple of years. Um, but I think swing wise, I, I, I never lost that. I, I, I love, absolutely love hitting balls on the range. Okay. Um, there, there's nothing better than tipping out a, a brand new bucket of range balls <laughs> and hitting them off the grass. Uh, I absolutely love it. Okay. So, um, don't get to do it much these days, but I, I really, that's something I really enjoy and always have enjoyed. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's, it's just, I've, I just always found, I suppose, coming at it from a slightly different point of view that I had a pretty decent swing coming in, um, just found that I could, I was playing smarter as I got through because I wasn't hitting, yep. as you come into the traineeship, as you said, you're generally spending 20 hours on the range per week hitting golf balls and you just don't have the time to do that during the training program. It's pretty pretty full-on um, program in general. It'd be hard to find the time to practice. It's it's busy. It's busy. It is. Um, I, I was pretty lucky. I, I, finished, so I finished my traineeship at uh, Victoria Golf Club and admittedly I was really well looked after. Um, by the time I finished it, we'd cut back hours in the shop um, so I was able to practice a little bit more, play a little bit more. Um, and actually, you know, the bosses there were, were really good. Um, Paul and Brian used to take me out on the golf course a fair bit. And as much as, you know, sometimes they were harsh, they were fair. Um, you know, shooting 80 in a training event where you sort of go, well, hang on, you're under the card for 15 holes and you still manage to shoot 80. There, there's something drastically wrong wow. not saying that ever happened that might be a bad example but you, you know what i mean yes um so I, I was i was extremely lucky there that um definitely my last uh, last year of my traineeship it was made as easy as possible for me to practice and to get through which was great just don't tell the pga they might send you back to do some more shop hours to get your hours up for the last year no 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 well i had um Oh, don't worry, I was still doing 40 hours, but um, I wasn't doing 50 or 60 hours. <laughs> okay. Um, and I didn't, by then I'd, I'd finished all my studies. Okay. So I didn't have to do study time. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't a matter of uh, the hours put into the study or the hours put into the shop. It was more just setting the time into playing. Okay, that's that's and, le- and learning actually how to get around the golf course. Yeah, for sure. I've got to be careful with that one. Uh, <laughs> No, it's all good. It's all good. Um, you're, you're, it's it's in the past now, so you're fine now. I'm sure. Absolutely. So you said you were. You said you felt like you're improved as a swinger going through. Um, did you seek out a certain coach, or did you jump around a little bit, or who were you? Who were your your swing coaches back then? Um. So back then, I, I guess I, I started with uh, Marcus used to have a look at my swing. Stuart used to have a look at the swing, um, both at Peninsula. Um, and then I, I linked up with um, uh, Rowan Dummett. So Rowan um, did a bit of work with Rowan for a few years. Uh, that was fantastic. Um, but I, I did chop around a little bit. Um, Stuart Leong probably had one of the greatest influences in my in my golf and my ball striking swing ability. Um, I did a bit of work. I, I was really lucky. I had some great friends. So guys like um, Tim Stone down at the National there. Um, he was a fantastic mate. He he helped me out a lot with my golf swing. Um, so that that was that was great. So I was, I was actually I was really lucky. 
Um, there was a couple of Melbourne guys that were um, were great. They they actually gave a fair bit of their time to me um, to help me with my swing. But it was more, it wasn't so much swing techniques. It was more just management of game. Um, so one one thing I remember, and this won't come as a surprise to you, but um, Stewie, uh, before he uh, brought out shots to hole, he helped me massively understand where I was actually throwing shots away and what I was doing around the greens and things like that. With We had this Excel spreadsheet and uh, the data that it would produce was just phenomenal. Now, yes, it was all manually punched in and then it would all calculate itself out and give, give some amazing reports. As, as we look now and go, well, there's no surprise with shots to hole and stuff like that. But at the time, there was nothing like that. Um, so that information was absolutely gold. Um, it, it actually led to me being a much, much better golfer. It's, um, it is it is such an important part. And as a coach, the, the times that you have those disagreements with players about what they should be working on, if you've got that, that – those the data to come back to and say, well, this is what the stats are showing yep. to support you. It just um, strengthens up your your coaching. I'm sure. I'm a look. I'm a big fan of it, even though, unfortunately, as you voluntarily know, I think a, a lot of golfers, definitely club golfers, don't see the benefit in it, or they see the benefit in it, but it never really happens, uh, or we get mixed. Mixed results. The, the classic one that I, I, I love seeing, and I, I tend to be a little bit cheeky with this uh, with guys I coach, where they punch in their good rounds. After their good rounds, they're always really quick to jump on the stats. It's the rounds where they've hit it horrible that I'm actually really interested in their stats, how they've got round the course, how they've thought their way around the course. They never seem to want to do stats after a bad round. And it's just that funny one of going, well, hang on, I don't, I don't care if you, you know, if you're shooting mid-60s and you're telling me you hit 15 greens or 16 greens, that's great. But when you shoot 75 or 80, that's the stuff I want to know about. And that, that, it's an interesting little thing. I think that's something that we uh, we struggle with. Yeah. Well, it, again, it's just common sense, but it is hard to get them to put that bad data in. But I've always said to my, all my clients that it's not the quality of your good shot that determines what type of player you are because we can all hit that perfect seven, nine to three feet. It's the quality of that shot that goes offline. So arguably putting that bad round in will give you more valuable data. Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I look from a, I, I like it all. I want, I want all the data. Yeah. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I'll come back, come back to Stewie again and say, you know, from a data point of view, at one stage, yeah, we we're keeping data on practice. And the data was more about how, how well the pre-shot routine uh, felt and was before the practice shot. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure back then all he was thinking was, I just want to get this guy, stop him from hitting 500 golf balls on the range each day and get it back to actually quality practice. But to actually stop after each shot and think about, well, how, how did I line up on that? What was my setup like? What was the result like? And then put that into a process of where we actually could rate it and actually put it into some sort of, you know, format where we could chart it. That was phenomenal. Yeah. It, it really changed the game. Um, and I, I guess, you know, 
every so often we get players that love doing that and take more notes and do that sort of stuff. And then every so often we get the people that just want to beat balls. Yeah, very true. But Stewie is on my hit list to come on the podcast, so I'm sure I'll get tie, tie him down at some stage soon enough and have a have a chat to him about his journey. He's had some pretty yes. Well, I, I think he makes me look like I'm not busy at all with what I've heard of him doing. <laughs> he's almost uh, impossible to catch up with, so he's, he's a very hard man to tie down. Yes, I can understand that. So hopefully he's tuning into the podcast at some stage. So Stewie, if you're hearing this, I'm coming after you. <laughs> but, um, I like it. You talk about pre-shot routines, and I did some stuff with the Taiwanese team when I was coaching over there about pre-shot routine, pre-shot routine consistency. And um, we used to, I used to time them on the course, and I wouldn't show them till obviously after the tournament. And we do it in practice rounds, and we do it in tournament rounds, and the variance um, between tournament and practice rounds was huge to start with. But the variance between shots, we had a like a like you said, we had a, a we were in a, a spreadsheet and it was we were plotting onto a graph and it was a like the Himalayas just up and down. It was crazily um, how much the variance was there. Yeah, it's it's an interesting, isn't it? As as golfers, um, you know, I love the idea of control what we can control. I can control how I stand behind a shot. I can control how well I pick my target, you know, my full pre-shot routine, I can control that part. Once I stand over that golf ball and start to swing, well, that's that's it. That's, that's you know, I've got to just let it happen and let, you know, let the ball fly. Um, it's interesting that we, we spend so much time trying to control this swing or trying to control this golf ball that's uncontrollable that we don't spend much time or minimal time working on pre-shot routines. Uh, it, it's it's interesting. I, I, I guess with better golfers, they see the value of it. Club golfers. So for me, I, I was thinking about this earlier. Thinking about it, um, chatting with you earlier, and and what we're talk, going to talk about and stuff like that. And I was thinking that I haven't done a lot with, or haven't tried to do a lot with tour players. I love helping club golfers. I love helping that twenty-seven marker hit that perfect drive. There's nothing better. Um, the look on their face. It, it's Bigger wins than helping a tour player, you know, perfect a, a shot. It, it's it's different when you see that guy hit it over 200 for the first time in his life. There's no better delight. But to get them to see the value of a pre-shot routine is such a hard thing. Or to get them to work on a pre-shot routine, it almost feels like it's a they they treat it almost like it's a waste of a lesson time. Um, but it's such a valuable thing. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to, um, and I, I it, was, it was just more that we we were mates. I did a little bit of work with a, a guy, uh, Ryan McCarthy, Australian golfer, and we'll muck around at Victoria on the putting green. And he just sort of said, "Oh, look, mate, can you just grab a stopwatch? I just want you to time my pre-shot routine for putting. Seven point one seconds, three times in a row." Oh, what's it? Wow. Now, I, I look at that and go, okay, look, I, I reckon we got lucky with the decimal point there. <laughs> However, it was pretty funny how it was like, at this point, I want you to start it. As soon as I make contact, I want you to stop it. And it was 7.1 seconds, three times in a row. That's a pretty well-rehearsed pre-shot routine. That's cool. It is cool. That's, that's the level, I think, that we, you know, as coaches, hope that all our students have. So... I saw a pretty distinct uh, crossover with the Taiwanese players between 
when they had a certain certain time with their pre-shot routine to the quality of shot that they hit. And you could, yep. you, you could almost say, you'd almost call it if they went three or four seconds more than what they would normally do or three or four seconds faster than what they would normally do, it was going to be a bad shot. Is, yes. is that something that you've, you've seen in, in your place? Lots. Lots. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's interesting to watch it, to watch a player that we talk about in the zone versus a player that's scrambling and struggling. And when I say scrambling, I'm not talking so much from a shot point of view mentally. And they'll often, um, it's a, it's that funny one of they'll either rush it because they're in panic mode, or they'll take that extra couple of seconds. And when you sort of when you digest it and go through it and go back through it, it's like yeah, I just couldn't commit to the shot. I couldn't see the shot, so I just and they they take that little bit longer to try to you know almost talk themselves into the shot. Um, and you're right, inevitably, when that's out by that far, only bad things are coming. <laughs> very, <laughs> very true. It's it's sort of, it's almost that, um, you know, letting go and let it free will a little bit versus trying to force it. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree. You're almost better off speeding them up rather than slowing them down. Yep hitting him to get over and Definitely. pull the trigger quicker rather than taking too much time over it. Absolutely. So you, you said that you struggle to convince golfers that that's good training when you're coaching them in that space. I'm gonna, I'll, throw the, I'll throw the hard question at you. How do we convince them that it is worthwhile doing that stuff? It, see, funny enough, I think in, in my space, it's one of those things where – it's hard without data. It's really hard without data. Um, you can, you know, if if you're if you're dealing with a a better golfer um, and you're spending time more time on the course and things like that, then you can give them the data of, hey, that shot there you took this long, or that shot there you did this, and it, and it, and it works really well to be able to present that information of the amount of time taken pre-shot routine versus the result. And this is this is what you did. Do you under and they can see it and they'll they'll anal, you know, analyze it and go straight through it. With a club golfer, when you've got an hour on a, on the range, it comes back to how much you can convince them, how much you can sell them on it, almost verbally. And you know, we we use examples of you know like Tiger and Dustin and those sort of guys. And look, these guys are, are doing this because they know how important it is. And they're the most talented golfers in the world with the, you know, the best, arguably the best swings and the best ball control in the world. And they see the value of it. You've got to be able to see the value of it as well that, hey, look, you don't have the best swing. You don't have the best ball control. But if you take the right amount of time and if you take, go through the process the right way, it gives you the best opportunity of performing at your at your peak. It's, a, it's, a, it's funny. It's a hard sell without, without the data. So it's a bit of a... Chicken and the egg type situation, isn't it? You can't you can't coach it if you haven't got the data, but you can't get the data until it's and until you start coaching it. Challenging. Absolutely. So my view is, from a coaching point of view, I'll always throw it in there. Um, I will almost. Uh, I, I like to give my my sessions definitely with people that are are doing continual lessons over a longer period of time. I'll typically title the lesson. So right, you know, when it, 
every lesson I think starts pretty much the same way. How are you? How you've been? Um, if you haven't seen them for a week or two weeks or so on. And they normally talk a little bit about their golf, talk a little bit about what's going on in their personal lives, and then it's it's into it. At about that stage, I normally go, all right, today is a day where it's not a technical day. Today's going to be player mode, and we're going to do this. So you walk them through it for an hour, and you, you basically make it so you're controlling, okay, we're doing pre-shot routine, um, and I'll, I'll always try and put them off a little bit. I like messing around a bit and I'll either ask them a question when they're about to hit the shot or I'll, you know, I'll try and throw them off balance a little bit just to see how awake they are and how aware they are of what's going on around them, uh, how aware they are of what we're working on. Pretty quickly, most golfers will pick up on it. Most golfers will either really love the session and then, it, I, then it's up to them if they use it. Um, but from my point of view, if I'm throwing that at them, say, every month or every three, four sessions, at least they're getting that constant, uh, I guess, uh, refinement of it. At the same time, hopefully they're embracing some of it. Uh, but it's a, it's a hard one. It's similar to stats. Yeah, yeah. No one wants to do stats until they see the benefit of it. <laughs> well, you don't see the benefit of it until you do it for a good couple of months without seeing the benefit of it. Yeah. It's exactly that with pre-shot routine. No, that's cool. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a funny one. It's, I don't think we'll ever answer that one. <laughs> I definitely won't answer it tonight. No. Um, but if you, ever, if you ever find a better way to, to teach it or to get people to embrace it, oh, be all over it. I think, I'd love it. I think a whole group of coaches sitting down with some good bottles of wine and some beers and having a good chat about it might be a good step towards solving that problem. You have me at beer, you have me at wine, and a bunch of coaches sitting down, that's gold. <laughs> that's all good. Um, I, I can still think of the evil stares I used to get from the Taiwanese players when I used to throw golf balls at them at the range when they were going through their pre-shot routine or push their bags over just to try and put them off, just to get them to actually, okay, start again, go through it all again. It was it was a challenging space, and they're so used to just hitting shots off the driving range mats and trying to hit perfect shots, they just couldn't cope with that. That that type of stuff. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting. I think there's a there's a lot of golfers out there that um, that need that uh, sensory training where um, they're bumped off balance and uh, have to work through it. I think that's a great way to practice. Yeah. Um, even even to the point of uh, how many guys on a driving range give themselves that perfect perfect lie never drop the ball and see where it lies and then have to find a way to play that to the target. I, you know, the practicality of, uh, of a perfect lie every time off a perfect flat, perfect surface, ridiculous. So until the, the ground staff out there, but certainly getting 10 balls and then scattering them on the, on the, on the practice tee and then play them as they turn up is a, is a great way to practice. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Which is really cool. Okay. So getting back to, you've gone through the trainee program, you've got through, was the, yep. the first step out there, was it in straight into coaching? Did you go and play for a little while? Did you go into a club-type role? I Look, I, in all seriousness, I I never got it really into uh, the whole playing thing. Um, I, I love golf, and I love playing golf socially. I love playing golf in um, competitions and things like that. But I don't think I ever did my traineeship to be a player. I was, I was never under the illusion that I wanted to be a player. Um, I always wanted to be a teacher or a coach. 
So for me, it was um, as quickly as I could build up the lesson book. Um, you know, I, I used to do lessons before work, during lunch breaks, after work, until it got to the point where um, I had a fairly fairly strong um, coaching presence at Victoria, which was great. Um, but for me, it was all about coaching. Uh, it definitely wasn't about playing. I, I like. I, don't get me wrong. I like playing. I, I said at one stage um, before COVID, right? I'm going to get back into playing. I'm going to play a few pro amps just for the hell of it, just to keep you know keep a bit of an eye in. Um, but it sort of, um, unfortunately, COVID sort of knocked put a dent in, and then we've had this boom in golf. And uh, lo and behold, four months have gone by without touching it. Well, I've touched the clubs once. Um, it's madness. It's, um, it is scary. I, I said to myself when I turned pro that I would not be one of those pros that stopped playing golf, but I've yep. turned into one of those pros that doesn't play golf. It's um, I did a charity day for my um, out in the bush for my brother's school, and that was the the charity day I did for him last year. Was the that was the two games I played in the last eighteen months. So yeah, crazy how long that's been. Yep. Absolutely, which is awful. So straight into coaching, what um, what did you bring into your coaching from your from your playing background or from that that search for your own swing? Did any of that stuff come into your coaching when you first started? Massively. Um, so I, I look the half, half the battle with me as a golfer and me um, with my golf swing was I used to use myself to experiment with. Uh, you know, you'd read about a golf swing, you'd see someone swing, and uh, we used to muck around on the range mimicking um, different golf pros, golf swings, and just seeing what, what we could do and what would happen. Yeah, it sort of butchered my golf swing and butchered my game a little bit, but it was fun to learn. Uh, you know, geez, if the club comes in here, what, what does it feel like? Um, so that's, I, I learned a lot about how a club moves just through trial and error and mucking around with a few things. Um, from a from a what do I what do I bring into it from a coaching point of view with my own playing? I guess there's a there's a certain empathy there uh, for when a golfer's standing there looking at a fairway and going, "Holy cow, I've got no chance of hitting this fairway." It's an interesting feeling to stand there and not know which side of the you know which trees you're going to hit it into, but know that it's going into the trees. And it's something that I think very talented golfers don't don't really get. Whereas I think club golfers, sometimes they're standing there going, I can't hit. Uh, from that point of view, it was, it was good that uh, I could sort of express sometimes that, hey, yeah, I've been there. I've been in that position. I know what that, you know, I, I have an understanding of what that could feel like. Okay, let's work through it. How are you feeling? What are you thinking? And then go from there. Um, it, it definitely it definitely changed it didn't change my coaching, but it made it easier to um, to relate to my customers, relate to my pupils, um, which I think put them at ease a little bit. That just makes so much sense. I've seen research out there that shows that the really high-performing sports people don't turn into the really high-performing coaches. Um, yep. It's the guys that, that struggle a bit. So they're still, at a certain standard, they're still high performing sports people but they have that that it t t doesn't come easily to them they have to struggle through a touch themselves so they do have that they have that 
understanding of the work that it takes to improve the skill, which um, obviously translates to your students really well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I come back to I had a had a had a guy once who was just the most phenomenal pitcher of the ball, chipper of the ball. Um, he had his short game hands were just unbelievable. Uh, once sort of go through chipping with me, and it was when I was I was having the horrors. I, I literally I could be a meter off the green and think there's not a hope of me hitting this green. Um, of course, you know you'd use a putter and things like that, but we're talking like with a wedge. And the way the way he explained it was perfect. Yes, okay, set up this way, swing this way, turn this way, do do whatever you have to do. And I giggled and went, yeah, yeah, I know that. I can't hit it. And he'd go, well, yeah, that's because you're doing this, this, this. It's like, yeah, I, I know. I, I've looked at it that many times on camera. I know exactly what I'm doing, but I can't seem to break that hurl. And basically what it ended up being was that I just needed to just chill out um, muck around a little bit, you know, throw some flop shots in there, do do some other stuff, and it came back. But from his point of view, he just couldn't. He, he, he and it came out very clearly in what he was saying. He just couldn't understand that I could stand there that close to the green and picture I wasn't going to hit the green and have twenty practice swings and go, yeah, that looks great, and then stand there on the ball and go, nope, can't hit it. It's a, it's an interesting feeling, and I, I, I you know. I, I hope never to feel it again. <laughs> hope never to go through it again. But I'm sort of thankful that I did get to go through it um, because it, it, it is a feeling that um, I think sometimes, well, I think club golfers go through that a bit. You know, they get a new place where they've never played from. They don't, they're not that confident as it is. They're under pressure and they've got to try and come up with something. Um, it, it's, it, it makes it interesting. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a that's a really really cool um story you've told there. I think that's really really awesome. I, I certainly like that. I certainly get where you're coming from. It can be challenging as a player, but if you've gone through that, you can you can get that thirty handicap in front of you and kind of have a bit of a sense of the struggle that they're having with those changes that you're trying to get through to them. Yep, which is really yep, cool. Absolutely. So coaching, you've had a few different venues, essentially. Private clubs type setups yeah. mostly. So Victoria, the National, and now Sandhurst. Yep. Um, how does that work? Obviously, you've got the the club golfers that are there. Is it easy to bring clients in from in that type of setup, or is it just basically going with the with the club golfers only? It's mainly going with the club golfers. So typically. Um, and, and look, I, I think it's freeing up a little bit more now, but typically when you're involved in a private golf club, you're not coaching under your own banner. You, you're coaching as part of that club. Um, that You're typically advertising only to your members. <clears throat> uh, so bringing, bringing people in is more word of mouth than actually um, being able to advertise outside the club. Uh, and that, that's, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I don't mind... That obviously I don't mind. I've worked at. Um, I've been very really lucky of, as to where I've worked and what I've done with the golf uh, or with my golf. Um, it, it is a very it's a very different role I think to working at a public golf course. Um, and even Santos, while Santos is private, it's it's semi private. It's probably this is right now. I've probably got the most access to um, to external resources. 
than what I've had at Victoria at National. It was very much only advertising to members. And typically, we'd only coach members or members' guests or friends of members. Uh, it, it wasn't very much that, yeah, you couldn't bring anyone in or you couldn't advertise outside to bring people in. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I'm I'm sure it's it's got its challenges. It would be good in the way that you've got a clientele base essentially at your doorstep, but that clientele base might be have a cap as well. There's only a certain amount that you're going to get out of that club before you have to try and bring other people in to expand even further. They, they, you know, at both Victoria and National, they're full memberships. They 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 you know they they. Got wait, they've got waiting lists and things like that that um, you're not bringing more people in than what are there. Um, interesting enough, I actually think that makes you, in some respects, more responsible as a coach because it, they they end up being almost like small little towns. Everybody knows everybody. If you're doing a bad job, you don't go very far. It's going to spread pretty quickly, isn't it, through that club? It, it, spreads, it spreads pretty quickly. Uh, if you're doing a good job, it spreads the same way. Uh, you know, it's sort of it's a it, it's a funny way that it works, but I, I I like that. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, for sure. So Sandhurst, you're you're in the centre down there yep. with the PGA. So um, talk me through how that setup is. You've got obviously the outdoor range and the indoor centre. So talk me through how you use some of that in your coaching. Um. So from my from my point of view, I the indoor centre is amazing for bad weather, um, amazing for data. Um, so I, I like the idea if I'm if I'm doing some if I'm working with a player where it's, we're working really technically, I love working indoors. I like having the net. Uh, I made a made a joke to someone the other day who was who looked like he was trying to kill the ball. I mean, he was swinging at about 120% of what he could swing at. And I, I sort of, you know, jokingly laughed with him. And I've known this guy for quite some time. So our, our uh, I guess our, our relationship's extremely relaxed. And sort of laughed and said, look, the net's only four metres away. No matter how hard you hit it, that ball is only going to travel four metres. <laughs> uh, so from that side of it, I think it allows us the space to be able to uh, do some really good drill work. Uh, we've got the we've got the gym in there. We've got Jordan, uh, the physio there as well. So it, it allows for a lot of bouncing between you know using therabands, using gym equipment, using the training center and hitting nets, uh, plus trackman and putt lab. You can do a lot of really technical stuff really easily without having to run around too much. However, I then still love um, definitely getting guys out on the range and actually hitting off the grass and seeing a ball flight. Uh, and definitely, if I've got a new student, it always starts on the range. I, 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 I grew up watching golf swings and watching ball flight. I still like to see their swing from a point of view of ball flight, how they take a divot, what they do with the grass, their interaction there, how they go with picking a target and actually hitting a shot to that target. And I think that lo you lose that inside. It, it sort of it lines... It, yeah, I say it's square mat. It typically lines you up straight to the mat. It's the target straight in front of you. When you're picking odd targets that are that are off the line of the grass, uh, and then you sort of can you know throw in the thing of hit to the right of that target or hit to the left of that target. It's very it's a much better, much more pure way to actually see a golf swing 
and get a sense of how they play. Then from there, it's go inside and get some data. Okay, this is what I'm seeing out here. This is the shot you're hitting. Here's the data to go with it. And here's how we're going to fix it. That's typically the pattern that I follow. Um, and then from there, I, I actually try to stay outdoors as often as, as often as I can. Uh, I don't like getting reliant on trackman numbers. Um, I, I'd rather see, as I said, I'd rather see ball flight. Is it something that you take outside? Do you take the trackman outside with you on the range? I don't. I don't. I I probably I probably should. Um, in retrospect, I probably should take it out there and get a bit of both both worlds. Um, I I almost prefer. I, I guess, funny enough, this sort of, I prefer actually just strictly doing, so if I'm going outside, it's strictly a range session with them outside, and then another session will go inside and do indoor technical work. And once again, it comes between that balancing act of what are we working on for that day? What's our goal for the day? What are we trying to achieve? If we're trying to achieve swing dynamics and um, if we're trying to work on you know numbers and things like that, then we're inside. If we're if we're trying to work on on ball flight, um, as as much as the numbers can help, I'd rather they don't know the numbers. I'd rather they actually have to see and feel it without the numbers. Um, I still I still think that's a better way to learn golf. Yeah, I would. I'd be I'd be on the same page with that as well. I think I think no, that's. I'm, I'm, it's funny. I'm sure there's plenty that will argue with us. <laughs> that's, that's, that's part of the fun of uh, the that's podcast, great. and that's part of the fun. That's part of the fun of it. Um, you know, I'm certain there are people out there going, no, nope, that's there's no way you can feel a shot. You've got to be able to see the numbers to support the feel and things like that. Personally, I prefer them to feel it. I prefer them to be in the dark on the numbers and actually have to read the ball and see that and learn how to read the ball and what it's doing and give them the feedback that way. Okay. Uh, yeah, I haven't got any any problem with that answer whatsoever. But uh, you, I would probably, from my own personal perspective, I, I, I'm probably the same way. I do like to see the ball flight. I do like to see it outside, but I'd like to see the data as well. So I would probably have the track man out on the range with me just to have that to having the okay that that felt like a certain swing for that player, and this is what the track man data said the swing actually was. So. Yep. But that's yeah, that's cool, mate. That's, that, that, this is the whole point of this of this podcast is to get people chatting about coaching. I want to hear what everyone has to say. So, haven't got any problem with that whatsoever. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's good fun. I'm curious how many or how many clients out of say 200 that turn up to you for a coaching session across a certain period of time. How many of them come to you for the tech, and how many of them come to you just for a standard range type lesson? Do you have one? Do you have clients that specifically ask to go on the tech, or do you have them just coming to you for coaching in general? <laughs> funny, funny enough, I, I, I chuckle straight away. I go, I, I think of one guy that I coach who um, he's phenomenal. He works hard. He actually works really hard. He came for the tech. So um, he was recommended by another coach um, to come down just for the tech. We spent half an hour in the in the room looking at looking at swing and looking at his ball flight and numbers. And I sort of said to him, "Well, this is this is what I think." And all I could do was give him my opinion of his golf swing. And I, I laughed and said, "Actually, I think you actually need to go out there and have more fun out in the range." 
you you need to you your swing looks great, but it looks like you're trying to be absolutely spot on through you know waist high position through the top through as you bring the delivery position. When do you just hit the ball? And he said, well, no, no, I've, I've, I've come for this. And it took a couple of minutes for him. And it was like, okay, can we go out on the range and let's have some fun on the range? I, I, just, want to, I just want to see if you can muck around for me. I want you to punch some balls high, punch some balls low. You know, let's see what shapes you can create. Um, and funny enough, for the, for the next couple of sessions, it was all about actually shot shaping and, and really mucking around. We actually, we, we were laughing at most sessions and... Um, joking and sort of going, all right, who can hit the biggest hook? Who can hit the biggest slice? Um, I wonder if, you know, can you knock out that 100 sign? Uh, you know, that that sort of stuff. It, the right instrument at the right time, I think is what's really important. I think as a coach, we've got, we, we definitely have to give players what they want, but I think they're coming to us for a professional opinion at the same time. And there are certain times where, yes, technical is needed, but there's certain times where they might think they need technical and need numbers, but they actually need the opposite. Now, push comes to shove, the customer's always right. If this customer, if this pupil I was thinking about, if he had really pushed and gone, no, 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 I strictly want numbers and that's all I want, I would have given in, without a doubt. But within a couple of minutes, he sort of he, he grabbed the idea. He understood what I was saying and what I was presenting, and ran with it. So that was great. Um, but no, look, it's I, I think golfers. I think some golfers come to us under the perception that if you've got the technique, uh, if you've got the technology, you must be the best coaches. I don't completely agree with that at all. They're just another tool. The same as what a video camera is, the same as what an alignment stick is. It's it's a, just another tool, really, um, and it has to be correctly used. That, so, um, yeah, that that completely makes sense. And too much of the same thing can't be good for anyone. If you if you if you only hitting balls on track, man, or you're only hitting balls out on the range, or you're only hitting balls off side hill lies, all that stuff's going to be bad for you in the long term. Spot on, spot on. It's got to be a holistic approach. Has to be. Yeah. So I look from my point of view. I, you know, it's different. I think it's different when we're talking putt lab. I think people specifically book in for putt lab because they want the numbers. But then once they've got the numbers, I think then putt lab has its place as okay. There's there's numbers. Let's go out on the green. Let's do some practice. Let's do some drill work, and then let's come back in and retest. But it wouldn't be session after session after session sitting on on putt lab. I don't think. And again, yes, again, a tool. So this is your your start line. Go and do some work on it. Come back and test it again, and hopefully see some sort of improvement. Yeah, spot on. So Absolutely. I've got to get some coaches into that in that short game area to come and have a chat to me. So guys like John Graham, if you're tuning in, I want to get you on the podcast at some point in time. He's a hard man to to, to track down as well. Yep. So he's um, yep. he's a challenge. Daylight savings. It's it's ending. It's over. The days are going to get shorter. 
hopefully, uh, hopefully there's a little bit more uh, free time or a little bit more time to to spend elsewhere. Yeah, no, that's um, we get some some guys on that I've been hunting down for a while, so that's really cool, mate. Thank you so much for coming in tonight. I really appreciate it. We could chat here for hours and hours. Um, I'm definitely going to get you on to my recurring guest list i think yep. um we do as people that tune into the podcast quite often would be aware we do have a a standard guest with scotty williams comes in has a chat to me and occasionally we get some coaching coaches in as well so I might add you to that list to be on that discussion panel at some point in time in the future cool more than happy to had a lot of fun but there, good fun chatting about golf but there is five questions that i ask everybody so it's gone from four to five <laughs> Um, uh oh. So we haven't you haven't quite got out of it just yet. So um, we had four questions last year. Now it's five questions. So, what tips do you have for coaches starting out in this crazy golf coaching business? Four. Uh, what I guess two tips I'd have is watch as many golf coaches as you can. So go out there, make contact with them. Watch how they do it, but watch it with an open mind, not right or wrong. Watch it with, um, you know, why why did they do do this at that time, or why did they start at that point? Uh, and I think that that's a great way to learn how to coach. Um, the second is have fun with it, experiment. Um, you know, don't don't be afraid to 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 laugh um, with your clients and have some fun with them and. Uh yeah, it's 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 wonderful to be part of uh, a part of their development. I think, and that that um going to see other coaches coach is a pretty common answer to that question. But I really enjoy that. Have fun with it. I think we forget sometimes as golf coaches that we're in there, no students' recreation space. Yep. They're out there, um, having playing golf for their enjoyment. So if we're too serious out there. That has to have an impact on the, how they how they play. So I think that's cool. It, it, it's interesting. I reckon you can almost measure how long you've been coaching for by watching someone hit a shank in front of you. And I think you know the first time you see someone shank it, you're horrified. I've got to fix this. I've got to sort it out. The second, you know, as you go further down, you sort of laugh about it and go, "Hey, we all do that." And it just moves it on really quickly. It doesn't turn it into, you know, a big problem. It's just, it happens and move on. Um, it's interesting watching new coaches. It, you know, oh, please, I hope they don't shank it. I hope they don't. It's that sort of mentality rather than go, ah, nice shank. That was solid. Well done. <laughs> and on you go to the next thing. Um, you move past it pretty quickly. It, it can be hard as a coach starting out to not fix the whole problems straight away to, yep. to see five or six swing faults and you you could get caught in the trap of trying to jump in and fix all five or six things at once. I know I did yep. that early on as a coach. Absolutely. So absolutely. Uh, so I, I, I always I always had the theory of um and the, funny enough this came from came from a gentleman who um I was doing my playing test to start my traineeship. And he just he just pulled me aside. He, he's quite a great. He's actually a really good ball striker. Uh, and he, he sort of just said, "Listen, I suggest you start from the ground up. Check your alignment. Check your ball position. Check your setup. Go through your grip. 
you'll find your answers there. And it's something that, you know, we, we, many years down the track, I think I still come back to a lot of that sort of thought. Um, it, it's interesting how how easy it is to to get lost in the swing. Uh, when you start messing, you know, with the basics and with the foundation stuff, how quickly all those swing things disappear. Yeah, I would be on the same page there. The again, this story has come up quite often in the podcast, and I say it to the trainees that I speak in front of and different people that I taught grip stance and set up for the first essentially the first two years of me coaching, possibly some takeaway stuff because um, I couldn't see the swing faults when I first started coaching, and my players improved. Just by getting that that that's set up and takeaway right. Yep, spot on, absolutely spot on. I did I did a junior clinic once, uh, a, a girls' junior clinic, and I, I basically I, I'd worded up the parents as we started. I just said to the girls, right, I just want you to hit some golf balls, and I said to the parents, look, there's not going to be a whole heap of coaching. I'm happy to do this for free. I'm not too stressed about that, but I'm going to use your kids as an experiment. And all I set up for them was, okay, this is how we set up on a golf golf ball and alignment sticks. This is how we set up to our target. And they literally spent an hour hitting balls, working purely set up alignment. It was amazing to watch how, how much their swings changed as that hour went on and as they hit balls and the different path the club was traveling and the different way the body moved the efficiency of it. It was it was arguably one of one of the better clinics I've done, and this is this is years ago. That I still sort of look at it and go, "Yep, it has it it carries its weight. It really does." Yeah, that's so. No, big fan of it. That's cool. I'm just on that quickly, um, keeping you much longer than I expected, but we're going really sure. well. Um, <laughs> teaching golfers, and it kind of ties into the second question for tips for golfers starting out there. That's kind of the second question in this one, but. Once you educate golfers that the target is actually down the fairway as opposed to the golf ball, their swings change as well, I think. When they stop being obsessed with hitting the golf ball and understand that the target's down there, their their swings get improved as well, I think. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. You get, you get that. You, know, you, you see the new golfers chase the ground so hard. Um, rather than just swing through the ball, and that, that's sort of that first point I think we always try to make is look, it's a you know the club's travelling in a circular motion around your body. It's it's not stopping when you hit the golf ball. It, it, the golf ball gets in the way of that motion. Then you know I think that starts the process of it. Um, it it's it's a ripper. It, it's it's one of the hardest things I think to teach a, a brand new golfer as much as you can say it and. Until they hit a couple, they don't believe it. They don't. They don't see it that way. Yeah, no, I would tend um, to agree. So on that, on the in that vein, any tips for any players out there that are tuning into the podcast? Yeah, my my favourite one is reality. Uh, feel versus reality. What you feel is often not the reality of what your swing is doing. And that sort of flows back into the whole thing with YouTube and all those sort of things. I think it's great. I think there's so much great information out there about how to swing. The only problem is you're basing it on a feel of how your body's moving that often isn't correct. It can lead you down the garden path. 
Um, so I, I like the idea of I I try to educate um, my beginner golfers on the things that you know I guess fix what I can see. So I can see how I set up. I can see my grip. I can see the club halfway back, and I can see the club as it comes through the ball. Outside of that, that's that's it. Um, trying to work on. I had a, had a gentleman the other day who'd been watching some videos on Dustin, and he was working on really, you know, getting cupped at the top. Couldn't work out why he couldn't get the ball straight, and I was like, "Well, hang on a second. <laughs> You're starting in a position that shouldn't be getting into that position at the top. How are you getting there? Oh, well, what I do, I roll my hands this way, and that gets me to there, and that's the position I I think I need to be in." And it was so far off off the planet of where he'd ever naturally go that he'd, he'd taken himself down a path that was well and truly, you know, in the wrong direction. So I like the idea from a beginner golfer point of view of stick to the basics. Stick to what you can control. You can control where your feet are pointing. You can control how wide your stance is, where the ball position is. You can control what grip to have. You can control your posture. That's it. From there, just hit. Have fun with it. Hit. The ball will eventually turn turn straight, rather than letting the ball dictate, you know, what you what motion you're trying to make. Makes sense. I don't know if I actually answered your question no, no. or if I just went round in circles there. <laughs> no, it's all good. Uh, <laughs> I, I think in this whole in, in in this whole show that there's been heaps of in heaps of tips for golfers out there. We've had a good chat about that stuff today, so that's all fine. So, where do you see yourself in five years' time? Really hard question. Really hard question. I, I must admit, I, I, <laughs> I haven't thought about that enough. I think the last year has been, uh, for me personally, has been a, a, a really interesting, really um, exciting, tough, brutal year. That um, you know, I, I, I haven't really thought about five years down the track. Uh, I'm more thinking next year, year after. Uh, I'd like to be doing very much the same sort of thing I'm doing. I, I, lo- I love what I'm doing. I love coaching i love working for the pga um it, it's it's a fantastic role i definitely want to expand more on the role um but um yeah i i'd be very sad but i'd be very happy doing exactly what i'm doing now um and as i'm saying that in my mind i'm going no 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 you've got to want more than that <laughs> No, I'm actually I'm I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. Oh, that's good. That's fine. I'm having any any problem with that whatsoever? So, how about coaching? How do you see coaching changing in the next five years? Yeah, look, it's it's interesting. I think more and more awareness um, is coming through from you know your golfer now. Uh, they're pretty aware of what the pros are doing. They're pretty aware of the different swing types, the different coaches out there, what they're coaching. And I think that's going to keep progressing. Um, you know, I think everything goes around and swings around about. Um, so right now, um, thanks to Bryson, everyone wants to bomb it. Everyone wants to hit it harder, longer, further, and distance seems to be that thing that's driving people. I think that's going to, you know, that will, that will change again. Um, and it will turn into ball striking more than just, you know, ripping the guts out of the ball. From a from a coaching point of view, um, I'm look. I'm, I actually I'm really excited by you know the things we're doing physically with golfers. 
I think we're learning more and more about how the body moves, how it works properly, how the club interacts with the body. Um, Technology-wise, it's it's cool. The, you know, the 3D analysis stuff that's out there, um, you know, the biomechanics work, and I, I, I think the whole COVID, the whole COVID thing, it's actually brought the world closer together. You know, like right now, you and I were. We're, we're miles apart. We're in, in different different places, and we're talking over over you know webcams and things like that. More and more of that's happening. Um, I, I think what we're finding is the world's opening up that way more so. So it's going to be an interesting little space to see. You know, it won't be that we're just teaching in our clubs, or it won't be that we're just teaching in Australia. I think it's easier to teach on a broader scale to more people. So I'm actually I'm I'm pretty excited to see how that goes, how that expands, and um, what that does. Uh, I, I think it'd be a lot of fun. Really cool. Online coaching is certainly changing, isn't it? It is. You can you, you you can do this. You can get someone to set up their their phone on their on their driving range across the other side of the world and give them a golf lesson. Yep. Which is yep. Which last is- year I I coached a guy in Kerrang. Um. Now we we were having a lesson every couple of weeks. Uh, he'd set up he'd set up the the webcam or set up the phone down the line, and we we worked on his swing. He, you know he he dropped his handicap from nine to two, um, whilst we were all locked indoors, and uh, it was fantastic. It worked actually really well. I was actually surprised how well it it worked. It was fantastic. Cool stuff. Really cool. Um, is he? Based on the fact that you're very comfortable where you are now and you don't want to change things in five years' time, is there anything that you would change in the past? Um, yeah, look, there, I, I, there is, but it's more to do with um, if I knew what I knew now 15 years ago, you know, what I'd do differently with different players. Um, and I, I, I still uh, one of one thing I still do I still go back over every lesson I give and I still think about lessons I gave a year ago, um, and go you know what I probably I, I could have done that differently I could have gone down this path or I could have done this. Um, they're the sort of things I look at and go that I change. Um, Career wise, I, I guess I'm I'm very much um, a believer of what what's happened has happened for a reason to get me to where I've I've got to. I don't look at much uh, or don't look back much. I, I find that doesn't do you know. I like looking at lessons and things like that, but looking back at what I've done personally, um, there's not much I change. I've been, as I said, been really blessed. Uh, Peninsula Golf Club, Victoria Golf Club, National Golf Club, Santurst. It's it's. It's been a pretty uh, a pretty good work environment. Yeah, you've, you've been spoiled for for choice when it comes to <laughs> golf courses there. So that's um, yep. that's that's pretty impressive. Now that's that's cool. I haven't got an issue with that. Um, any sources of information that you go to when you're trying to improve your coaching? Is there certain places you that you go when you're searching out some brand new stuff? Yeah. Yes and no. Um, I like I love talking to other pros about different thoughts. Um, I love, funny enough, I, I actually really like looking at some old footage. Um, and not, not, you know, everyone tends to look at Ben Hogan, but guys like Kel Nagel, Peter Thompson, those sort of guys, um, they have phenomenal golf swings, um, with equipment that wasn't great to play golf with. Uh, 
look back at the you know the old the old Norman footage and stuff like that. I like looking at that and just seeing more you know how it worked and why it worked the way it did. Um, from a information point of view, I I tend to experiment more. As I, as I said, I like experimenting one with myself, but I, I don't mind experimenting a little bit with with students and sort of going, all right, I I, I know they've got to move this way. How's the best way to get this message across to them. And I, I think from a, a point of view of coaching, what we're basically doing, we all, we all can see a golf swing. We all can see what we're, what we're looking for, but it's how we convey that message to the student that actually counts. Did they understand what was trying to be conveyed? And so for me, it's more of, I, I guess I don't look at swing stuff as much as I should. I look at communication stuff more. What's a better way to teach someone this movement that I want to get, or uh, you know, different ways of communicating uh, the same message? How many different drills can I come up with that fix the same problem? That sort of stuff is what I like mucking around with. Mate, that's cool. I haven't got any problem with that whatsoever. I think that's a, a part that coaches tend to overlook a lot. They tend to get very tied up with what a perfect goal swing should be and don't get across how they get that get that information to the student to get to awesome advice yeah look it's yeah it's 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 good fun um yeah you know, i don't i don't like methods i don't like looking at other golf coaches and their methods um i i, I like i like glancing at them and seeing what they do and having an understanding of why they do what they do but then from there it's it's more about how do i get yeah you know, as you said that 30 marker how do I get him down to 20? What do we need to do? And how do I get him with the simplest message possible to get the best result? Great stuff. Makes sense. So where can people find you? Have you got a presence on social media? I couldn't find it when I went looking for you. <laughs> um, I, I do. I'm on, uh, I am on Instagram. Um, and I've actually got to think about um, what the actual – Link is it's uh, Kim dot uh, at seventy seven I think from memory, um, and as, as you can see, I, I'm not I I miss that whole social media thing. So Kim dot dot seventy seven is my Instagram account. Um, other than that, it's basically through the PGA Center. Um, so the PGA Center for Learning and Performance uh, at Santos, as we discussed, which um, to get in contact with me, it's www.pgaclp.com.au um, and on there are all our contact details, our booking sheets and things like that. But social media, um, I, I haven't used it effectively as a selling tool or as a business aid. Um, I'm still, I think I'm old enough to sort of look at it and go, it, it's, it's a great way to waste half an hour of the day. <laughs> And I ha I haven't quite used it properly for the whole revenue side, which I probably should be looking at. Um, that's probably the next thing I, I need to do uh, a lot better. Uh, but yeah, look, I have a, a have a Facebook account that I never look at, never use, and I tend to chat a little bit on Instagram, but that's about it. I'm shocking. I'm terrible. All good, mate. I will send them to the uh, PGA CLP site so they can have a look at that one. And get in get in touch with you. So I'll put the links to um, all those contact details in the in the show notes so everyone can find them. So Kim, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, awesome chat. 
we've gone way over time, which I apologise for. No, no, it's my my fault. I should have given you short, sharp answers instead of stories. No, it's it's good. As I said, people are tuning into this podcast to hear from you, not from me. So the 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 more detailed answers that you guys give, the more happy I am. So, mate, thank you so much for your time tonight, and we'll we'll catch up real soon. Brett, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.